well, this is different. <laughs> this is cool. Uh, hi, everybody. Good to see all of you. It's great to be with you today. If you're watching online, hello. Good morning, North Indy. Good morning, Fishers. Wonderful to be with you. So, yeah, this is a little different. Uh, we are going to try something today. If it totally bombs, we'll never do it again. But you know what? We're going to give it a shot. So here's what we did. Throughout this whole series, we've talked about these turning points in our life and major milestones and, and challenges that we often face um, as followers of Jesus. Uh, parenting adult children, marriage, uh, caring for aging parents, when the dream dies, when, th you know, we've looked at all of that from Ephesians 5 and 6. And throughout the series, uh, we've asked you to submit questions to us, things that you'd like us to talk about some more, go a little deeper, uh, or maybe specific things that you've faced that you'd like us to respond to. Now, there's no way we're going to be able to respond to all of your questions, but we thought, you know what, let's do this. For the fifth week of the series, let's make little mini sermons in response to some of the questions that rose to the top. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's give this a shot. Amy, we're going to start with you. Yes. So there was a question that came in, and um, it was, the question was, this series seems to be all about loving people, loving others, um, whether it be your aging parents or, or your adult children or your spouse. And so their question was, so is love uh, a heart thing or is it action? Is it a feeling or is it it's something that you act upon? What is the biblical definition of love? And the Bible talks about love in both ways. It's kind of both and. Love is both a feeling as well as an action. And no matter how love is mentioned in the Bible, it is mentioned a lot. Uh, depending on the translation that you read, anywhere from 300 to 900 times is the word love brought up in the Bible. So love is deeply important. Um, Faith, hope, and love, but the most important, the greatest of these is love. And while love is a feeling, in much of scripture, it's accompanied by action. Jesus talks so much about love. Again, much of it, most of it accompanied by action. He says in John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Well, Jesus' love was full of action. It wasn't just a feeling. It was something that he did for others, culminating with the greatest act of love on the cross. So if his command to us is love each other as I have loved you, that kind of love is full of action. Jesus calls us to love each other by our actions toward each other, by the way we serve each other. He says this to Simon Peter in John 21, 15. This is an interesting interaction. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was getting a little hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. If you say you love me, show me. Share that love through acts. 
I believe that love without action is like faith without deeds. In James 2.17, he says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Faith without deeds, love without action. It's dead, it's useless. The feeling of love by itself is not enough. You must show it. First, First Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love, do. Galatians 5, 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Do serve. Love requires service, acts. Love needs to be expressed and experienced. For love to work, it must be active. It's something that we actively do. It's a series of choices we make every day, the choice to lean in, to serve others. That's the self-sacrificing part of self-sacrificing love. It's the action that comes along with the feeling. And I would like to say that if you're struggling with the feeling, often the action helps bring about the feeling. Sometimes the more you do for someone, the more you serve them, the more that love will grow as you serve them. And you continue to ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to give you the feeling as you continue to perform the acts. To feel love for someone, but never express that love to them through action feels vacant. I think Bob Goff says it beautifully in his book, Love Does. That's because love is never stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about it or keep planning for it. Simply put, love does. Well, the original question that I was given was this. It was, how do I overcome the guilt and shame that I feel for the damage I caused to my now adult children. And I just want to say as I start, I believe that the answers to this specific question actually uh, work for overcoming the guilt of any past mistakes. And what this question uh, really touches on is two different aspects of our life. One is the guilt and the shame that we feel inwardly. And the second aspect of our life that it deals with is how do we bring healing to relationships that we've damaged. And so I'll start with uh, inner guilt, the first place that I go when I'm dealing with inner guilt, and this is going to seem odd to some people, I'm sure, is to look at what Paul the Apostle said about getting over the actions of his past. We know that he did some terrible things in his pre-Jesus life. And those things surely made him feel shameful and guilty. Well, just listen to what he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. He said this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do His work. The Lord considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve Him even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted His people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This 
is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of His great patience, even with the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in Him and receive eternal life. Now, Paul had to overcome the fact that he'd blasphemed Jesus. Now, that actually means that he had openly proclaimed that Jesus had been empowered by the devil. And he'd also persecuted, and actually a better word, the way to say it would be he'd sought to kill the followers of Jesus. And these were people who had now become his brothers and sisters in Christ, and I can't imagine what it was like to live as Paul had to with his memories of violently terrorizing these innocent people who were followers of Jesus. And I am certain that there came a time after Paul had come to faith in Jesus that he, he had to admit publicly that what he'd done was terrible, and that he'd had to ask the entire Christian community for forgiveness. And can, you ima- can you imagine how difficult that would have been? We also know that No one at first trusted Paul's claim of being a changed man, but eventually, after watching his life over time, the Christian community grew to love him. And and here's the point in all of this for me. If God brought this kind of change to Paul, if God in his mercy could remove the sin and the guilt of someone like Paul, then God will certainly forgive those of us me, who in our ignorance have brought heartache to others, and in particular, when we've brought heartache to our adult children. That's where I start. I start by learning to live into God's mercy and the fact that He is in the transforming business, that He is in the business of changing us by forgiving our sins and remaking us in ways that we become like Jesus. And as He transforms us, what He really helps us do is He helps us let go of our guilt, and He helps us let go of our shame. But that alone isn't enough. Beyond that, God also wants to transform the relationships that our former sins have damaged like the relationships with our adult children. So here's some practical advice that I've taken straight out of what I've learned at looking at the life of Paul, and here it is. The first thing that we have to do is we have to get up and go to those whom we've hurt, be that our adult children or any other people that we may have damaged, and we have to say to them that we know what we did. And we know that what we did was wrong and that it was harmful. Paul certainly had to do this. I am confident that I cannot expect forgiveness from anyone until I am honest about the details of the damage that I've done in their lives. Now, when I'm talking about your adult children in a moment like that when you're admitting your own guilt for what you have caused in their lives, I think it's perfectly okay to say something like, back then I was trying to do my very best. I was doing the best I could with what I knew. But then you have to follow that up by saying, but now I know that what I did was wrong. 
and that I'm sorry. And something else that I've learned in my own life when it comes to adult children, when you're in that moment when you're being honest and asking for forgiveness, I think it's a good idea to offer to go to counseling together. Now, what I've learned is that if we offer this to them and patiently wait to see how they respond, it doesn't really matter whether they say, yes, let's do this or let's not do it. Just the fact that you are willing to say, I'll go, that shows a significant sign of humility and repentance, and that's really what people need to hear from you. Now, guys, none of this is easy. But if you're truly sorry and your heart has honestly been transformed by Jesus, then these sorts of actions with those whom you've hurt, they will help you move past living with your guilt and your shame. And it may take a good while, especially for an adult child, to forgive you, and they may want to set up some boundaries for a while while they wait to see if you're serious about your new perspective on things, but if you give them time to see your changed heart in life, then I am confident, like Paul, you'll be able to move past your guilt into transformed relationships that will be living examples of the great mercy that God offers us through faith in His Son, Jesus. I don't know how I'm supposed to go now because I have a lot to think about after, after all Tim just shared with us. Now I've got a lot to chew on. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen so I have time to think. There were a couple of questions related to the idea of putting others first in your life. How does that affect your relationship with God? What if the people that you are supposed to put ahead of yourself are being manipulative or even abusive? And I understand this. This can be hard when you're caring for so many other people. You're in that sandwich generation where you're caring for parents and children or the club sandwich that we even came to know where you're caring for your aging parents, your children, and your grandchildren. But first and foremost, your relationship with God is always first. It is always the top priority, no matter what relationship you're dealing with. Jesus said in Matthew 22, in verse 37, starting in verse 37, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second, second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The greatest commandment is love the Lord first and foremost, then love the others around you. Relationships can be hard. All of relationships can be hard. Whether it is your marriage or your relationship with your children at any age or friendships or your parents at any age, there are so many decisions to be made, conversations to be had, conflict to navigate, and you cannot do any of that well unless you are spending time in the most important relationship in your life. You need time with God in order to have the discernment and the wisdom to make the right choices, to set the right boundaries, to have the difficult conversations. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, give all your worries and cares to God for he cares for you. In Psalm 55, 22 says, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. 
Sometimes you just need to rest in that. You need a break, you need help, you need Jesus. That relationship comes first and when you seek him and abide in him, he will give you guidance as you navigate all of the relationships in your life. 1 John 4.13 says, and God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he is in us. When you abide in him, when you give him that space and that time, he gives us the spirit to figure life out, to figure our relationships out, out. I said in my message that your aging parents come first. And we've talked about that with self-sacrificing love. Under the, that concept, everyone comes before you. But that does not mean that you allow yourself to be manipulated or abused or completely overwhelmed by that relationship. Put the most important relationship first. Pray, abide, and trust that the Spirit will give you the wisdom and discernment to know how to engage best in all of your relationships. And sometimes the best way to honor your parents or raise your adult children or engage with your spouse is to set a boundary. Sometimes it's to step away for a while. And sometimes it is actually to cut off that relationship in the way that you have always known it, if that's absolutely what's necessary. But seek counsel. Seek counsel from the number one relationship first, from God, and his spirit will help you. And sometimes, yes, seek counsel from others, from friends, from a therapist, whoever you need to help you navigate some of the difficult relationships in your life. Put your relationship with God first. Engage in him, with him. Abide in him. Listen to the Holy Spirit and that will absolutely guide you and carry you in all aspects and relationships in your life. Good stuff, guys. Good stuff. Uh, so we got a bunch of very specific questions, but there was one question that came up uh, again and again. I, I think actually about five individuals actually asked something along the same lines, and it was, it was basically this question. How do I influence my adult child when they see the world so differently from me. Uh, one person asked that, one parent asked that because their child has walked away from faith entirely, uh, in faith in Jesus. Another asked because it seems like every time he posts something on Facebook, his child, his, his adult child just posts something really angry back in response every time. Um, another person was just frustrated because it seems to them that social media is just way more influential in their adult child's life than, than they are. So what do you do what do you do when you want to pass on your faith in Jesus to your kids, but it sometimes seems like they live on another planet? How, how do you do that? Uh, well, even though parenting adult children was your message, I thought perhaps I could give this a shot and see if I could respond to this. Um, here's why. Because I am an elder millennial, as I've talked about before, so I, I, I may be a millennial, but I at least have my foot in the, the Gen X world and, and perhaps, you know, understand a bit more of the context on the other side of the divide. So let me, let me see if I can address my response to this type of question. Okay, so how do you get your adult son or daughter to realize that your view of the world, that your understanding of Jesus is the right one? How do you do that? The answer 
is you don't. You don't. You don't. No amount of arguing or persuading or posting on Facebook is going to convince your child to change their minds. I have got that bad news for you. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. So you don't. You don't do it. Why? Because your adult child is coming from an entirely different cultural framework than you are. They're from a different culture. Okay? Now, I, I, I get that seems a little crazy because, I mean, how could that be the case? You're only one or two generations removed. How could they be in another culture? But, but think about it. With the amount of change that's happening in our lifetimes, I mean, the amount of change that's happened since boomers first were boomed, like, into this world, I mean, we're talking about a massive amount of change. And, and talking about how we understand our world, what we see when we look out at the world around us, it is very much like cross-cultural engagement. Trying to, uh, trying to, you know, argue about your values with someone from another culture, it doesn't work, okay? It'd be as crazy as, as me trying to argue with someone from sub-Saharan Africa that they should adopt my chaotic view on time as an American. Or, or, or if someone from, let's say, South Asia were to try to say, Barry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you to be less individualistic. Like, I... I don't know how that works. It doesn't work because we come from different cultures. Your child is, is, has grown up being shaped by influences that are foreign to you. Foreign concepts of personhood. Foreign understandings of, of truth. Their foundation for reality is a completely different foundation than yours. It's cross-cultural engagement. So don't try to fix them. It's only going to backfire. It's only going to backfire. You cannot change someone's culture. It's, it's hardwired into them. So what do you do? So what do you do? Do you, do you give up? Is that the response? Is that what I'm supposed to say here? Do, do you let your child just drift off into the abyss of secularism? No. No, you don't give up. You don't give up. You get to work. But you don't get to work on them. No, you get to work on yourself. Work on yourself. Here's what I mean. Jesus, when he was uh, doing his ministry on the earth, he didn't have to convince anybody uh, to be close to him, to follow him. They wanted to be near him, right? They wanted to be like him because his character was magnetic. Jesus had the Holy Spirit breathing through every inch of him, and it showed. He was incredibly loving, right? Amazingly kind, uh, unbelievably gentle. You look at the Gospels and what you see is a man that everybody wanted to be around. And when he commissioned his disciples to take his message into the world, Jesus didn't tell them to go off and, and argue people into belief, right? He didn't tell them go out and, you know, bash people over the head with the truth. No, he told them to live and to love and to act like he did, to have the same fruit in their life that Jesus had, the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul calls it. Uh, th this is what Paul calls the, the outcome, the end result of a life that looks like Christ. Here's how he describes it in Galatians 5. Uh, Paul says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I believe that when that kind of fruit is abundant in our lives, the message of Jesus kind of preaches itself. People are drawn to that kind of living, right? Including your sons or daughters. 
They will be. And so when I say that you need to work on yourself, parents, here's what I mean. Nurture the soil of your life. Prune the vines of your heart. Tend to your spiritual life so that the fruit that you bear looks like the fruit that Jesus bore. Loving, joyful, peaceful in what you post online. Patient, kind, good in your interactions with your child. Faithful, gentle, self-controlled in how you interact with others. Your adult child watches how you treat the person who's waiting on you at the table at dinner, okay? They watch the way that you interact with people at the grocery store. They see it. It's not just for little kids. Older kids see it too. When those words, when that, that fruit begins to describe you, well, then your son and daughter will be drawn in no matter what cultural paradigm they're coming from. The fruit of the Spirit transcends culture. So work on yourself. Let God work on your child. God's not going to abandon your child. Let him do the heavy lifting. You just work on your own heart. A few verses after listing the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says this. He says, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So don't give up, parents. Don't give up on your child. I know it won't happen on your timeline, but your child needs Jesus, right? So why don't they meet him in you? Oh, and one more thing. Adult children, if you're hearing me right now, let me just talk to you for just a brief moment. Are you appalled at your parents' political beliefs? Are you totally frustrated with their view of the world? Do you want them to wake up and understand the Jesus that you know? Does it seem like they're from another planet? Well, guess what? Work on yourself, okay? It's the same message that I told your parents. Work on yourself. Let your parents see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Then maybe it'll start to change the conversation. Okay, the next question that I was asked was, what do we do when someone we love fails us? And this is a huge one because people fail us in so many ways. They can fail us by making terrible decisions that turn our lives upside down. They can fail us by lying to us. They can fail us by betraying our confidences. They can fail us by spreading gossip about us or making promises they never intend to keep. This list could go on and on and on. But when, the, when people I love have failed me, I always start by reminding myself that Jesus knows all about this. He knows all about it. He understands it. Why his own family, his mother and his brothers, tried to drag him home one day because they thought he'd lost his mind. And once when Jesus was visiting his hometown, all of his friends and neighbors blew him off and said all sorts of horrible things, hurtful things about him. And who can forget that Peter denied even knowing Jesus? or that Judas completely betrayed Jesus. Jesus knew what it felt like to have people that we love fail us. 
One interesting thing, though, is that we also know that eventually a good number of the members of Jesus' family, the same people who thought he was out of his mind, they ended up following him as their Lord and their Savior. And Peter, even after denying that he knew Jesus three times, found his way back into a very close, intimate relationship with Jesus. And the question is, how did this healing happen? Well, I think it all started with the fact that Jesus never stopped loving these people. Now, I know that that sounds pie in the sky. He loved people. But the kind of love that Jesus gave wasn't a gushy, warm, fuzzy sort of love at all. It's the kind that Amy spoke of just a bit earlier. And the Greek word, it's the one Greek word everybody knows, the word agape. But that word has uh, some very concrete aspects to it that are very difficult for us to get our arms around. The first one is that agape love, the kind that Jesus gave to others, is a love that always wants the best for someone else. Secondly, it always does what is best for someone else. And thirdly, it never expects to get anything back in return from the one that you're showing your love to. Now, let's be honest. This is really a hard-to-do sort of love. Plus, there's another aspect to this agape love. Um, It is also a love that knows that what is best for someone might be a really hard thing to do. Something like enforcing a strong boundary with someone who's consistently hurting you. Or calling out someone's destructive behavior and decisions. Or telling someone that you love that you just can't be around them right now. Agape is the kind of love that sometimes has to say, enough is enough. Agape, though, is also a love that always leaves the door open for forgiveness when true repentance is apparent. Now, I have no idea how hard it was for Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, to say to Jesus, we are sorry and we are ashamed of the way we treated you that day in Capernaum. That day we hurt you so deeply. Can you forgive us? Can you forgive us, Jesus? But I'm sure they said it. And we all know how Jesus responded. So what do we do? What do we do when people who we love fail us first? The first thing in the midst of our pain, we just pray and thank Jesus that he understands all about it. That's the first thing we do. And then secondly, we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us carefully decide the appropriate action on our part that will be best for the person we love. Now, it could be in the moment what they've done to hurt us is just something that we just need to forget it. It's, uh, it isn't worth the fuss. Or it could be that we have to speak to them and give them a good dose of truth knowing that they probably will ignore us. Or it could be that we even have to separate from them altogether. Even Amy talked about that earlier. The best thing for them and for for us is for a while to just let go. 
But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we always let go while holding open the door to forgiveness. No one ever said loving others like Jesus loves us is easy. But I believe that the love of Jesus, the kind of love that Jesus has for everyone, it is the only kind of love that can lead to healing for both the person we love, the person who has failed us, and can lead to healing for us in our moment of pain. Well, thank you guys. This was an interesting exercise in just seeing how many lines and connections God was going to draw between what we shared. I think what it really boils down to is two things, honestly. Self-giving love. I mean, it's something that we give of ourselves to love others, and it's relying on God's Spirit to work through us. That's really what it boils down to. And yet, it's obvious that there are many, many, many different relationships that need those exact same things. So uh, let me pray for us, and uh, yeah. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the many ways that you have uh, spoken to us through this series and even through the words that, um, that Tim, Amy, and I shared today. I pray, Father, that as we seek to be the kind of loving community uh, that you dream of us being, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we would listen carefully to your voice, and that, Father, we would choose to, uh, to love our families, to love our neighbors, to love the people around us well as we respond uh, in, in the same kind of love that you showed us. So, Father, we pray all these things, trusting and believing in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.